0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So the uh, title of the talk is... uh... The choice is ours. And I wanted to um, start it by reading a very well-known verse or a couple of verses from uh, the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is uh, a collection of um, pithy teachings uh, of the Buddha's, um, and there's a story behind each of these. And then they were. Uh, collected into uh, um, a really great compendium. And this is this verse. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hate. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient. And inexhaustible. <clears throat> now, in this world, people do all kinds of crazy things, sometimes um, hurtful things, sometimes downright cruel things. And whatever anyone does when they do harm, uh, they're misguided. They're not seeing clearly. They are um, confused because if they understood the cause of real happiness, they'd know that hurting another um, will Never lead to that. And I am all for, as if you've been here before, you know I'm all for uh, taking um, strong, firm stands against injustice and uh, in mm, encouraging uh, the right thing and in, in... stopping uh, unskillful actions, and um, how easily we can demonize and make the other wrong, whether or not, I'm not just talking about the the cruel ones, but in our own self-righteousness, So clear that we, our way of seeing things is the right way, um, and how easily we can um, have our hearts contract in anger and even hatred, um, even and sometimes especially with those we're close to, with those who disappoint us with those who uh, we love and care about. A few weeks ago, I uh, I gave a talk, and somebody mentioned it. Uh, if you were here on uh, choosing your lineage, which lineage will you choose? I don't know if you... How many people were here for, for that talk? Yeah. And I was, I was talking... This is kind of like a, a continuation of, of that one, actually. Uh, I was talking about how we all have our own journey and our own stories, and the people who went into making up our journey and our life and our lessons, and we can um, see see them either with um, gratitude or with um, frustration and uh, and uh, anger and uh, resentment, depending upon what we receive from them, but to see in the bigger picture, they've all been part of our journey and that if we can hold everything that's been part of our development as our perfect curriculum, as imperfect as it might be, then um, then there's nothing left out, as Zen uh, as, uh, as saying goes, nothing left out. And I talked about um, looking at my own past and seeing all the all the conditions, causes and conditions and causes and conditions, and just seeing, coming in, in my own mind and my own heart, to see um, uh, dharmas without blame, that everybody... Just doing the best they could. I wanted to uh, to talk particularly about this um, this passage about how we can make the other turn someone into the other and have our heart contract and be um, uh, be at the affect of that contracted heart and that uh, bitterness and anger and um, the, another possibility. Perhaps in your life you can think of some somebody who uh, there's been a contraction for uh, for a long time. Sometimes we can get stuck for years in that. My family, I don't, Know if I mentioned it uh, when I gave the talk the other week, um, it seemed not just in my nuclear family but in my extended family, um, there were the there were the good relatives and the bad ones, you know, and grudges could extend over generations, and I could never figure out, you know, even sometimes I'd say, well, what did how did this all start and. Sometimes they wouldn't even know, you know. It's just the way it was, you know, like the Hatfields and the McCoys, and like that. Um, this always struck me as so curious and bizarre. Uh, they seemed like nice enough people, but um, I don't know, maybe there was something I, I wasn't seeing. Anyway, what, what prompted me about this, uh, this topic was uh, getting an email from um, a good friend of mine today. I was trying to figure out what I was going to talk about uh, just not, not that long ago, and on uh, uh, just before I went on a bike ride, I took a look at my email, and um, a dear friend who I used to uh, we used to live together and uh, uh, room together in. in in Queens, uh, and he's going to be coming out here and and visiting. I haven't seen him in a while. And uh, he was good friends with another good friend, actually one of my closest friends growing up in my, my life. And the two of them were friends, but there was a, something of a falling out. Um, one of them did something... Very minor, just not responding, and there was a habit of not responding, and my other friend just got really uh, frustrated by uh, that lack of response, which was just a habit of this other person, and, and I would say, you know, don't take it personally, because that's that's how he, how he is, uh, and it, but for years they um, uh, they there was this kind of distance. And from time to time, I loved them both. I'd say, you know, you might just say hi. You're both such nice people. Um, but um, my, this one person who was, uh, who was stuck wasn't quite able to do it. Uh, but recently he went through a, a, major, a major loss, a major tragedy, his, uh, his partner who he, they'd been very, a very beautiful relationship, uh, was, um, was killed in a car accident and he's still getting, he's still in a major grieving. Um, and sometimes that can, um, put things in perspective. And, uh, so as he was emailing me and sharing, you know, that he's he's going to be uh, coming out, um, he just happened to say in his email, "Oh, by the way, <laughs> had breakfast with Gary yesterday, and it was just so nice." We touched briefly on the past, talked it through, and put it behind us, then picked it up as if 25 years ago were yesterday. We both spoke fondly and admiringly admiringly of you, and he sends his best. That was it. And... uh, as you can see, I was just so, uh, I was both visibly moved and um, and so happy and just made me reflect 25 years of feeling distant, 25 years of every time that person came to the mind and the heart, it closed. And in just a, a, a tender moment when the heart was so vulnerable, calling and saying, hey, hi, how you doing? And like that, 25 years of armoring dissolved. Isn't that Amazing. The, the heart wants to forgive. It takes energy to keep it closed. But sometimes it doesn't know quite how to do that. And unfortunately, sometimes a major wake-up call, just seeing how fragile life is, is what's needed to put things in perspective, Just holding on to one particular way of seeing somebody, looking at them through a particular lens, and the heart contracts. So, where is the suffering? It's, it's just in the view that we are looking through. Oh, they did this. They are like this. They are other And when you think about this world, this world is just filled with other. And how unfortunate all of that energy, all of that that dynamic between human beings, as soon as that, as my friend shared, as soon as that, other is dissolved, and there's connection, and there's um, appreciation, and there's love. Can you imagine if we could learn more and more to dissolve those barriers of other? And we do this both with um, people who've hurt us, out of their own confusion. We do it with people who we care about because they've disappointed us in some way. Or we uh, we do it with people that we've admired because they don't live up to our wonderful standards, our unrealistic pedestals. And I, I think I mentioned it uh, in the talk the other week about uh, um, my um, um, reading a book from uh, uh, when I was with Adam. And I mentioned about the Black Cauldron, about uh, about the um, at the end of the battle. It was one of these chronicles of. Uh, I think I mentioned it. Did I mention it here? No? Maybe I. Maybe I didn't. Well, I'll mention it again, um, or maybe not. For the maybe not again. <laughs> Uh, one thing, and I write about this in Awakening Joy. Um, when I was, when Adam was young, I used to read to him. Um, it was my favorite time of the day. Uh, we'd we'd snuggle up and read uh, Chronicles of Narnia and uh, you know those those kinds of books. And there was this one uh, one series uh, called. Uh, um, the Pridane Chronicles by Lloyd Alexander. And uh, in this one book uh, called The Black Cauldron, there were five books in the series. In this one book, the, the protagonist is this, is this young kid learning to become a, a wise... It's his process of learning to mature into wisdom. And uh, he has a mentor... Uh, this very wise being, Gwydion, and it's you know the typical forces of good and the forces of evil, and um, they go through many many battles. And at one point, somebody on their on the good side becomes um, a traitor and goes to the uh, the bad side, so to speak. And at the end of this. This series of battles and, and war when finally the good are victorious, uh, as usually happens in those books. Um, and they're honoring all the heroes of the battles. And uh, Gwydion says, and we must also honor this one. And Taran says, honor him. He was a traitor. How could, we, how could we possibly honor, honor him? And Gwydion, in his wisdom, says, if it hadn't been for him at those key battles early on, we would not be here. If it hadn't been for his bravery when he was in touch with his nobility and his courage, we would not be here. And so even though his mind and his heart turned, we need to honor the fact that he was a benefactor for us. And I remembered reading this. I'm so glad I didn't tell this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I remember reading this with, uh, with Adam, and um, as I was reading it, I thought of all the teachers and... Um, inspirations, people who I had put on a pedestal and had fallen off in my mind. Because they weren't quite as perfect as I thought. And there was this flaw, oh, what was I thinking? And this flaw with this one, oh, they weren't a saint after all. And I even with my benefactors, well, yeah, but they weren't there the way I wanted them. You know, the mind can do that and the heart can do that. And I started to reflect on, as Gwydian did, all the ways that I'd benefited so much from them and how my heart had subtly closed because of some flaw that in their humanness and uh, I, I can remember to this day as tears started coming down my face. And Adam said, Why are you crying, Dad? You know. Or he said, Oh, there you go again. Because, because I could easily, when someone knows, you know, some beautiful part touches me, you know, uh, that's, those, that's when tears come down. <clears throat> I'm really. Um, I can be strong and tough, but I can also be a softy. And just as an aside, if truth be told, uh, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, in the paper or a couple of days ago, it was they had an article on the sound of music, because uh, it's the 50th anniversary. And um, I just need to see Julie Andrews' name in print, and I start to tear up. <laughs> it's true. And there I was, I was with Jane, and she said, Julie Andrews. <laughs> so uh, that I, I you know might as well know who you're s- sitting in in front of. But anyway, all of these all of these people that I had um, somehow uh, that had fallen off the pedestal and in a moment of of of, of Deep understanding, so much gratitude and appreciation and and sadness for not only how I did that, but how we all can do that in a moment, just turning somebody away because they don 't quite measure up <clears throat> and often uh, the, we can make somebody other, not because they don 't measure up or they disappointed us but because we have no idea what their reality is and we are assuming something that has nothing to do with the truth. But we can get activated and ticked off and are sure that our anger is justified. And I wanted to read to you a, a, just a, an exquisite story that touches me. listen compassion somebody's having a hard time right now oh no web page not available how's that possible (laughs) no we gotta get this story uh Okay, here it is. This is from um, uh, Jack Cornfield. Tells this story. Uh, it's in uh, I think it's in uh, Lamp Lamp unto Darkness or something like this. Here's the story, uh, and this is a, a true story. A young army lieutenant who had a problem with anger was remanded by his supervising officer to do an eight-week training course in mindfulness. After the first six weeks of mindfulness training, he stopped on his way home at the supermarket. It was hot and crowded and the lines were long. He became irritated when he noticed that the woman in front of him was in the wrong line. She had only one item and should have been in the express line. You know, we all have our stuff. (laughs) The woman was carrying a little boy, and she and the checkout clerk began cooing over the child. The lieutenant became more irritated. Then when the woman handed the kid to the clerk, (laughs) he exploded inside and thought, How thoughtless of her. Doesn't she realize there's a long line of people trying to get home? Since he'd been practicing mindfulness, he could feel the anger build in his body and the pain it brought. And he realized it wasn't going to help anything. So he took some deeper breaths, relaxed, and feeling the anger, he let it soften. Gradually, it subsided. When he got to the checkout clerk, he kindly noted to her, that was a cute little boy you were holding back there. She looked at him and said, oh, did you like him? He's my boy. My husband was killed in Iraq last year. He was in the military like you. So now I have to work full time and my mom takes care of my boy. She she brings him in once a day so I can see him. We're so quick to judge other people and have no idea of the reality. No idea at all as... uh, as the Dalai Lama says, you know, we live in, in our own realities, and when, when somebody does something that is upsetting to you, chances are they're not doing it to purposely upset you, but rather it's just that their internal reality is intersecting with your internal reality in a way that does not match up with your expectations. So here we have all of our ideas and notions about why people are the way they are. You ever have that that, that feeling, you say to yourself, you know, how could they do that? Are you kidding? You know. But if you... If you slow down a bit and just try to ask with a different inflection, "Oh, how could they do that?" I wonder what was going what 's going on in their reality. It brings a whole other dimension of understanding possibility of compassion mm. i actually, another friend had a story very similar to to this um, just recently where um uh, he wrote an email to uh, to somebody he thought he was writing it to um, to a group, but he was but it turned out he hit the reply button he thought he was replying all, but he wrote to this one person who happened to be in the thread of the communication and the way it came out was very weird. Why is this person telling me this, you know? And it set the, the person on the receiving end completely off. And that person wrote back a response completely triggered, freaked out, and how uh, how negative and how hostile and how? Why are you directing this to me and all of that? And it went to the whole group. <laughs> <laughs> Comedy of errors. And the person on the receiving end of that who realized that, oh, they had he had sent it. By mistake, to, to this person not to not to the whole group and um but the, he was still reverberating, and then there was a little bit of a kerfuffle around you know this email you know group email around charged situations is really dangerous, yeah if you've ever I have been in the middle of those, and it's not fun um but one person um said and the the first per, the person who had gotten uh angry was was not around actually had to he he left town for for a while so they had a little bit of a of a conversation and one person said um you know you might not realize this, but um he the one who got angry uh had just gone to um his sister's funeral, sister's memorial service, and it happened to be the anniversary of um, his daughter's passing a number of years back. So maybe he was in a raw, sensitive space. Let's just give a little bit of space and understanding. And as soon as they heard that, it was oh, that kind of changes things, like the the checkout at the uh, at the supermarket. Mm. There's a a beautiful saying um, from Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He says, uh, "If we could read the secret history of our enemies." we should find enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. That's the missing piece. We have no idea what leads people to do what they do. But in you know basic Buddha Dharma, basic karma one hundred and one, causes and conditions, causes and conditions, causes and conditions. <clears throat> and I wanted to read to you. We have time for this. A um, a story that um, uh, has always moved me deeply about this, and this is from a book. It's my favorite book on compassion. Originally it was called Field Notes on the Compassionate Life. Now it's just uh, called The Compassionate Life. I actually did a a series of talks. I don't know if they're still on the... um, uh, Oh, maybe about five or six or eight years ago uh, on this book because it was just so... It so moved me. Um, And this is a story... uh, And it's written by... um, A friend, Mark Ian Barish, B A R A S C H. Um, Let me read it to you just again to get a little bit more perspective. Stories are how things, uh, how the, the points get driven home, and this one has touched me deeply. The murder had shocked the down at heel Atlanta neighborhood of Vine City. Residents There were no strangers to crime, but the victim had been an angel. 43-year-old Patricia Knuckles had come up from those very streets, gone away to college, and then returned to her roots, working as a librarian, tutoring kids, doing charity work in her spare time. Trish, as everyone knew her, had had an unusual upbringing, an African-American woman raised by a white couple, Hector and Susie Black, who'd moved down in in the 60s to do grassroots grassroots civil rights organizing. There in the Deep South, trying to quench the flames of hatred while others fanned them higher, the Blacks, their three other daughters, and Trish had formed an unlikely, fiercely devoted family. Trish's cousin Michelle had been the first to hear she was dead, She'd been half-watching a news break about a homeless crack addict who had burglarized a home and murdered the owner, a drearily familiar tableau tableau of flashing police cruisers, yellow crime scene tape, and a beat reporter striving for gravitas. I know that place, Michelle thought, then realized with a ripple of horror that it was Trisha's house. Not long after, police caught 32-year-old Ivan Simpson hiding at his mother's place. What type of animal could have done that, killed her the way he did, Michelle asks me. Trish, and he interviewed, he went and, and spoke to all these people, Mark. Trish would literally give you the clothes off her back. She helped the homeless too. She would have helped him if he'd asked. The terrible pathos of a good woman brutally slain, of a family shattered by a monster in human skin, made the case a prosecutorial slam dunk. When Simpson pleaded guilty, the DA shifted his focus to getting the death penalty. As the crime's terrible chronicle was read into the court record, Hector Black, who had driven down from the Tennessee farm he'd bought after all the kids were grown, felt thankful his partial deafness made some of the account inaudible. He could hardly bear to glance at the powerfully built black man, head down and shoulders drooping, who sat in the docket. The defense attorney recounted how Ivan Simpson had been born in a mental hospital to a severely disturbed mother. His life had been a nightmare of violence and deprivation. When it came Hector's turn to read him his prepared victim impact statement, his feelings were in turmoil. Standing with his sport jacket thrown over his bib overalls, he told the court of his joy when Trish had come into his family. Although she was not our child by any claims of birth, Hector told the judge, she was our child by every claim of love Over 35 years, he'd watched her bloom from the thin, neglected child of a neighborhood alcoholic who often forgot to feed her into a woman intent on making the world a better place. He opened his briefcase and took out his favorite picture of Trish as a beaming eight-year-old, telling the court of the mortal dark that had swallowed their lives of his feelings of abandonment by a God whose eye, he'd once believed, was always on the sparrow. Such statements are usually a platform for crime victims to hammer home the enormity of their loss and demand the maximum penalty. But Hector had a starkly different purpose. I know that love does not seek revenge, he told the court. We do not want a life for a life. Facing the startled judge, he read the words he'd written to the murderer. I don't hate you, though I hate with all my soul what you did. Then summoning a reserve of will, Hector turned around to speak the last lines directly to the prisoner. My wish from my heart is that God would grant all of us peace who have been so terribly wounded by this murder, including you, Ivan Simpson. Hector remembers the moment. He says, It was almost like I was grabbed to turn around and look at him. He lifted his head and our eyes met. Tears were just streaming down his face. Such a look of, oh God, like a soul in hell. It was one of those rare moments when the raw wounds strip away all pretense or falseness. As he was being led away, Simpson asked to speak. Turning to face the family, he said, "I am so sorry for the pain I've caused. I am so sorry." Even the court's victi- court victims representative, the court's victim representative, accustomed to stony silence false contrition or even cruel mockery from the accused, told Hector she felt a sense of awe. This is something we rarely see, genuine remorse. And then Mark goes on as he visits Ivan in prison. She leads me to a fluorescent lit room, its walls decorated with fake flower wreaths and a pastoral painting of hunters and hounds chasing down a fox. Four brass ceiling fans whisk the soupy air. I'm seated at a conference table with 12 chairs like a jury room. He's probably going to cry, the warden says dourly. She puts a roll of toilet paper on the table, implying Kleenex would be too good. Ivan Simpson is led into the room, wearing a prison-issue white jumpsuit with an oddly stylish-looking blue collar. I expected a glowering manipulative sociopath, his sulfurous soul burnt to cinder, or some feral con man behind whose mask I would spot the hard gleam of cunning. I am unprepared for this man with an abject air of guilelessness, speaking in soft country cadences. When I ask him about his childhood, He tells me of the morning his mother, a schizophrenic who'd been in and out of mental hospitals since he was born, had awakened him, his four-year-old sister Latoya, his brother Chuck, and two other siblings for an early outing to the local park. He'd felt excited and happy. They were at the edge of the swimming pool when his mother, raving that they were all a threat to God, scooped them up and plunged into the water, trying to drown them like a litter of unwanted kittens. His sister Latoya died before his eyes. Ivan managed to thrash free and pull his brother Chuck to safety while the others struggled from her grasp. Ivan was adopted by his great aunt. He recites his ghetto coming-of-age story in an emotionless monotone, hot-wiring cars at 15, moving up to breaking an entry, earning a two-year prison stint, then the revelation of crack cocaine, just a few minutes of everything's at ease. He'd supported his habit through property crimes, lying and manipulating, sometimes stealing his aunt's rent money, watching as she lost her house, her car, and her job to the monkey on his back. The crack, he says, seemed to take away all my caring for other people. "'Had he had he ever really cared?' I ask him. "'Oh, I grew up in a loving atmosphere,' he says quietly in a slow, heartful drawl. "'My adoptive mom, Marie, she raised me good. "'She loved us, just loved us.' "'A tear squeezes from his eye and meanders down his cheek. "'I never had thoughts about hurting nobody.' "'Despairing over his addiction, he tried to kill himself ter- several times "'before going into treatment.' Clean for a few years. He got his life together, then went back on crack. I'm just kind of speeding up the story. And then had got clean again. And then one night, walking to a convenience store to buy cigarettes, he ran into his old dealer, who offered him a rock of crack. Soon high and craving more, he impulsively decided to do a burglary. Chance led him to Trish's darkened house And the crime that had unfolded like a Greek tragedy. When Trish had unexpectedly walked in on him, he knocked her down and tied her up, and after that he remembers having a strangely cordial sounding conversation. Trish, trying to calm him down, had asked him about himself. He said he was hungry. She urged him to take some cooked chicken and ham and sodas from the fridge typically concerned she even told him as she was leaving with her computer and st- as he was leaving with her computer and stereo under his arm that he should try to get some help he promised he would adding he would just use her car to drop off the stolen goods and leave it parked where she could find it next to the chinese restaurant up the street and he remembers thinking she was a nice person even remembers telling her to be sure to install some outside floodlights and put her lamps on timers to deter future burglars. And then I just left. I can hear the relief in his voice. Just left. For a moment, he's back at that crossroads, as if he could turn around and walk the other way, as if the story could end right there. His Sally his hears him in his sleep sometimes saying, I'm leaving, Trish, I'm leaving. Instead, Ivan scored some more crack, and as he sat in Trisha's car smoking it, he, startled, he was startled to hear a voice, ghastly cold, glacially clear, saying, go back and kill her. He looked over at the passenger seat the voice had issued from thin air. He recreated his hallucinatory dialogue, I said, I ain't going to kill that lady. She didn't see my face. Her glasses fell off. She can't ID me. You go back now and kill that lady, says the voice. You go back and kill her. And he did. And then it talks about how he had what's called command hallucinogen, hallucinations and on and on. But then I want to get to this part. This is leading up. Mm. So Hector mm -mm, had wondered in his diary, how could I hate this man who'd suffered so much as a child after that day in court? Someone so tormented by what he'd done He'd been unable to sleep that night. For the first time since the ordeal began, the coils that had wrapped themselves around his heart, crushing every fragile bone of hope, had loosened a little. He knew he'd done the right thing to oppose the death penalty. But there was something else, something he hadn't expected. I knew then that I'd forgiven him. The echo of surprise still in his voice, and though I found it an awful stretch to think I could be concerned about the man who destroyed Trish, I also knew I had to write him, encourage him that his life wasn't over. Hector had stayed up until dawn trying to find a way to put his new feelings on paper. The thought of being in prison for the rest of your life, he wrote to Ivan, must be very hard, but it doesn't mean It has to be the end. You can still find ways to help people who need help. You can be a force for peace and for light in dark surroundings. Patricia tried to make the world a better place. We should also try. If you will let me, I would like to keep writing to you. It would mean a lot to me to hear from you, especially knowing how hard it is for you to do this. Please try, he signed, a broken-hearted father. Ivan tells me that after his arrest he had only one purpose in his at his trial to die. I felt like for what I did I, z- I deserved to go. I done took someone's life even though my dying wouldn't make up for it. Why should I still be here? He told his lawyers over their objections to plead guilty. He wanted justice to take its course straight to the electric chair. But when they told him about Hector's opposition to the death penalty, he was baffled. Come on, how can someone not want me to die? And I just took his daughter's life. And Hector, how can he get up in court and said he hated what I did, but he doesn't hate me? He looked at me wonderingly. Eyes can tell you a lot about a person. I saw his eyes, and he was for real. And at first, I didn't even want to feel take that forgiveness." <clears throat> his voice catches only slightly. His head sh- sinks in shame. He's stern as he weeps. He'll not permit himself a sob, but his tears fall on their own accord, subject to the law of gravity, like raindrops trailing down a window pane. I strive to withhold my empathy, this is Mark talking, as if allowing myself to feel anything would be collusion, would betray the life he took. It's easy. It's not easy to do as I sit with a man forever condemned to dry his own tears. Hector continued writing Ivan, sometimes as often as weekly, the correspondence growing into a thick sheaf. He sent Ivan a letter with a leaf of scented geraniums. He regaled with the things happening on his farm, the struggle to keep the grass in the orchard under control after heavy rains, Chasing a neighbor's escaped cows. Hector told Ivan about his skateboarding grandson and teenage kids from the halfway house he invites out to climb around his property's waterfalls. And Ivan wrote back in a scrawled block letters and cursive about the thorn in my side, about how the hardened inmates think I'm crazy because I cry some nights about what I did. He described persuading a despondent man who had killed his own children not to hang himself and breaking up fights and arguments between people who literally wanted to see blood he was trying every day he said to do good the hardness i have against myself he wrote to hector is a sort of strength to help others that i draw from i used to pray i used to pray for myself but i realize it's not about me From the moment I came to realize the hurt, pain, and grief I caused, I can pray for others now. It's hard going, giving up anger, jealousy, lies, and pride, but I'm trying. Hector says, sometimes I doubt myself. Are you crazy, writing to the man who killed your daughter? What kind of strange bird am I? I do have to wrestle with my feelings, but somehow, improbably, Hector has grown to care deeply for a man struggling in the grip of damnation. So um, the whole book is quite beautiful, uh, but that, that's, that's the story that really gets to me. And it just shows me that we have a choice There's a famous discourse by the Buddha, the simile of the saw. I gave a talk on it here a number of years ago where the Buddha is saying, even if somebody is cutting off your limb, don't harbor ill will. Now that's a a big bar. (laughs) Don't hate. Don't hate. Actually, it's don't hate. Feel with compassion their confusion and send them loving-kindness. We have a choice. I can't say I always live up to it, but to see we have a choice and we're the ones that are holding on to that hot coal, the famous image the Buddha saying, uh, wanting to hurt somebody, harboring anger is like picking up a hot coal and trying to hurt them and not realize you're the one that gets burned so we hold on to our reality as if it were the truth and yet it's just our reality and this life is so short the what what has been playing in my head these last couple of days um, is uh, we can work it out. You know, Life is very short and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. And the Buddha said something like this. I can't see it here, but it's, thus shall ye think of this fleeting world A phantom, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, a dream. This world goes by so quickly and we are living in our own reality. So if we're living in our own reality, why not choose the one that really serves us? This takes tremendous practice and courage, but to see we're choosing for ourselves, for our own well-being, how we hold the events that happen to us and how we can either make other evil or see other as another dimension of ourselves, flawed, living in their own reality. So um, just as we end, uh, I thought maybe uh, just lead a, a short reflection. And if there is anyone, perhaps who your heart is somewhat close to, meta for the difficult, Maybe bring them into your consciousness. And as Hector did with Ivan, try to understand or imagine what's gone into making them who they are. And maybe you're not ready to open your heart, and that's okay, just be right where you are. It might be too much, but uh, just experiment and see. Understanding or imagining causes and conditions, understanding or imagining the reality that they would live in that would Manifest is a behavior that was hard for you. Understanding that you have a choice how to hold this cast of characters, yourself, the other, as Kuan Yin or the Buddha might see and hold each character. See if it's possible to allow the heart to just open a bit for your own well-being as much as the others. The wisest part of you, the wisest part of you, imagine how the wisest part would hold this situation. Dharmas without blame just all causes and conditions. And now for a moment. Broaden to look at the human experience, the seven point three billion humans on this planet who want to love and who get hurt. or who act out of confusion. And perhaps just imagine being Kuan Yin or the Buddha, seeing with great compassion all the suffering that comes out of that confusion. and just wishing everyone well, everyone to wake up for their own well-being and for all of us. May all see through their confusion. May all feel their goodness, and share their love well. May all see their true nature. Be liberated. May all know the highest happiness and peace. So just, uh, I invite you to take on as a practice, I have a choice here. You won't always remember it. I don't always remember it. But the more you do, the better your life is. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Hatred does not cease by hatred. Hatred. Hatred only ceases by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. So, good to be with you. And uh, hope you have a really great month and uh, see you uh, in May. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit